this morning, what I want to do in our time of study in God's Word is challenge a fairly common assumption amongst lots of Christians, not all Christians. In fact, I imagine most of you don't have this assumption, but some of you do. I want to challenge the assumption that the church should be involved in governmental issues and politics. We're kind of in between series right now, and so I want to talk about some various miscellaneous things in these next uh, couple of weeks. And today I want to talk about our calling to not be political, our calling to not be involved in governmental issues as the church. I'm not talking about individuals, we'll get to that, but today I want to challenge the church, and as the title goes, to mind its own business to be a little bit abrasive and to be a little bit shocking. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And I want to do that, hopefully, with a gracious spirit and uh, a charitable demeanor. I realize this is a controversial issue uh, where even within the quote-unquote camp uh, of like-minded believers, there would be differences. And so this is not a hill I want to die on like I would want to die on the gospel hill. Uh, But nevertheless, it is one of those questions that comes up and needs to come up. What role should the church play in government? What role should the church play when it comes to politics? Uh, And this even brings up a bigger question. What role does the church play in culture? Which sounds to me like a whole series that I would love to get to sometime. Uh, And so church and culture would be a good thing to talk about. And I would even welcome your questions along the way so that it might be a more well-thought-out series that might answer some of the questions you're going to have. All of that to say this might raise more questions than it answers. But we're going to talk about how we as a church should not be involved in politics this morning. We'll look at six strands of biblical-slash-theological evidence, if you will. We're going to try to build, I'm going to try to build in front of you, um, a biblical rationale, theological rationale for us not to be political. And so that's what we'll do this morning. And I think and hope and pray that it will be helpful. Again, acknowledging there's, this is going to raise other questions about other related issues that would relate to culture uh, that would be good and good to talk about. We won't get to all of those today, but I'll at least stir things up a bit, I think. Okay. Would you rather hear a different sermon? <laughs> maybe. And maybe in the days ahead, I would like to talk about the ascension. We don't talk about that very much. Um, uh, in the days ahead, I know we're supposed to this summer do a series on what the Bible teaches about hell. And then eventually, when the summer's over, we're going to get into the book of Hebrews and do a 14-week series in Hebrews and do the whole book rather quickly. Um, but this morning, this business about politics and government... All right, number one, the first strand of biblical rationale for the church not being involved in governmental issues uh, is the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus, number one. You can look at Luke 20 if you'd like to. You can look at John 18 if you'd like to. Um, but I'm going to quote Luke 20, 25 and John 18, 36. Uh, I realize that we're not going gonna to be all over the place today, especially if you're newer to the Bible You don't have to try to go there. You might want to write the verses down because I don't want you to take uh, my word for it. But here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 20, in verse 25. He says, I hear pages still, so I'll wait. Um, In Luke 20, 25, Jesus says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, 
and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. First of all, let's make the observation that that was an outrageous statement for him to make in front of a bunch of Jewish people. Okay? In the first century, they worshipped Caesar. You can go to Israel today and go to Caesarea and look at the archaeology and still see altars for Caesar worship where they sacrifice animals to worship Caesar. So on a certain level, this is scandalous for Jesus to say, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. What's Jesus getting at? Well, as we build this rationale for a distinction between the church and state, we start with Jesus and we see that Jesus acknowledges a distinction between the kingdom of this world, so to speak, Caesar, and his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. He acknowledges that there is a distinction. How about he even acknowledges that there is a legitimate distinction, which got Jesus in trouble. But nevertheless, that's what he does. Now, he's not denying the sovereignty of God over everything based upon where he would teach that very thing other places. God is above Caesar. Ultimately, it's all God's. Yes, yes, yes. But we want to make sure we acknowledge that even Jesus himself sees a distinction. Jesus himself, if you will, you want to use theological jargon, acknowledges that there are two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world, where there is legitimate authority, Even if it's corrupt and perverse, there is authority that is there, even used by God. And there is God's kingdom, so to speak. Also, in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. So that's another important passage when we would see the teaching of Jesus building this rationale. My kingdom is not of this world. There's a distinction between his kingdom and the quote-unquote kingdom of this world. And that just kind of gets us started. That doesn't, that's not the, the argument. But as we're building an argument to say the church needs to not be involved in, in government and politics and that's not our calling, we at least need to make the first step. And the first step for me is Jesus acknowledging a distinction between temporal earthly kingdom and eternal heavenly Christ kingdom. That's a half step, but it's an important half step that there is such a thing as a distinction between the two. And now I'm ready to move on to number two. And you're already thinking up questions. Good job if you are. The second strand of biblical, uh, biblical uh, evidence or rationale for the church not being involved in governmental issues is the teaching of Jesus' apostles. The teaching of Jesus' apostles. So we've got Jesus and what he taught, and then we move on to Jesus' apostles and what they taught. We'll look at Paul and we'll look at Peter, Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, if you would like to look those up. We see, in, in essence, Paul coming along after Jesus. Remember, Paul is called an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means he speaks with the authority of Christ, Christ having left this world and left his spirit and He, in Romans 13, is going to say essentially the same sort of thing or a complementary kind of thing. And then Peter, in 2 Peter, another apostle, is going to say a very similar thing, acknowledging the authority of government, even unbelieving, even ungodly government. They're legitimate authorities, but they're distinct from the church. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. I'll just read uh, a portion of the first verse just to get the flavor. We won't read the whole thing. But it says, let every person, Romans 13, 1, be subject to the governing authorities. 
And he goes on to explain that this is authority from God and talking about being instituted by God. But that's really as far as we need to go for this survey this morning. Paul says, submit to the government. Which government is that? The Christian government? The Christianized government? Uh, no, that's the pagan government. Okay, Again, we're talking about Caesar. We're talking about the Roman government, not the Holy Roman government. We're talking about Rome in its full-fledged paganism. And he says, submit to the government. Because government is from God. He's not saying the church is together with government. He's surely not saying that when you read all of Romans. But he is acknowledging it as a legitimate authority. But please notice what he doesn't do in Romans anywhere, or in Romans 13 in particular. Paul does not give any hint of the church's role in trying to transform that pagan government into a Christianized government. There is no hint of that at all in the book of Romans. There's no hint of that, I would suggest to you, anywhere in the New Testament from Paul. They're a real authority established by God. Submit to them. It's not about let's do all we can to try to Christianize that government other than we're going to, oh, we're going to get to this. We preach the gospel to those governing authorities. We preach the gospel to everybody. But it's not through political means, political measures, let's try to change them and make them a Christian government. No, let's acknowledge their authority and let's submit to them. Caesar, God, even though God is above both Caesar. Okay? Not okay. <laughs> now, maybe one more qualifier, and you can turn to First Peter if you'd like to, or a qualifier as we are moving from one text to the other. We're going to get to this, but this doesn't mean that, that Christianity, this doesn't mean that the church doesn't influence government. This doesn't mean that Paul's not influencing the Roman government as he's chained to a Roman soldier when he's incarcerated. This doesn't mean there's no impact. This doesn't mean there's not an influence. We're going to get to that. But there's not through political means, through those kinds of means, an attempt or even goal or focus to try to somehow change them. Just not there. Now let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, 13 to 17, we're just going to see the same kind of thing from Peter where he says in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He's just sounding like Paul. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You see a distinction, but they're to be honored. We won't take the time to get into this, but we do see Peter not obeying the government. Now, is Peter talking out of both sides of his mouth and he's confused? No, but in the early chapters of the book of Acts, Peter doesn't obey the government because the government says, stop preaching the gospel. Well, his rationale essentially is, I can't stop doing what God commands me to do. I'm supposed to submit to you and I'm going to submit to you up until the point where you tell me I can't submit to God anymore and then I'm not going to submit to you. 
that's probably for a different time, but I just want to acknowledge he, he, the same guy that disobeys the government is the guy that says you should submit to the government. The idea would be insofar as you can. Be at peace with them. Do the right thing. And so we would, we would conclude, I certainly would, as I'm reading Romans 13, reading 1 Peter chapter 2, that they're not saying anything different in essence than Jesus said, and they seem to just be chiming in and they're marching to the same beat. You don't get the sense, when you read, when you read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, you don't get the sense that somehow Peter is trying to get them to do some kind of political leverage to change the government. We need to get rid of the emperor and we need to have a democracy. We need to somehow have more Judeo-Christian values. And let's do what we can as the church to make a change here. You don't get that flavor at all. And you could say that's an argument from silence, and I'll grant that. This is a complicated issue. I, just, I was reading a new book on this recently, and the guy acknowledged, thankfully, this isn't the first book, and this isn't the last book that will be, uh, be written about this issue. It is something we debate even within those within the context, as I said earlier, of, of, of those of us who lock arms and we say this is the gospel, we'll, we'll commit to this, we agree to this. But what's the relationship between church and state? There's some arguing back and forth. But I think so far we're on stable ground. Um, there's a distinction. It's kind of interesting too, when you read First uh, Peter, he refers to believers as... Uh, those who are strangers and aliens. We belong to a future coming kingdom ultimately and we're kind of in exodus mode. And it's okay. Let's move on now. Let's continue to build the argument. It's not all done yet, but let's go to number three. The third strand of biblical rationale for the church not being involved in governmental issues is the mission of the church. The mission of the church. I want to look at 1 Corinthians 2 and 1 Corinthians 15. I'll quote Mark chapter 10, verse 45. But before we even get to that, what's the mission of the church? What's our mission? What are we here for? What's the Great Commission? We, we, know, we know what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, where all authority has been given to me on heaven and on, and on earth. And then in 19, he says... Go and make disciples. Literally, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So we're to proclaim Christ, make disciples for Him. No doubt this is through proclaiming the gospel, the gospel for salvation, the gospel for discipleship. That's our mission. That is what we do. You don't get any sense of political activism. You make disciples for Jesus. And Jesus is about primarily one thing, according to him, and that was to give my life as a ransom for many. It's an atonement kind of message. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And so what's the church's mission? I hope you're thinking, well, Great Commission is jumping out of my mind. That's what our mission is. That's what Jesus commanded us to do. And then you move on to the apostles and you see the same kind of thing. 1 Corinthians is a great example in chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says, and I quote, For I decided, 
stronger yet, better yet, in some translations that you might be ha- you might be carrying today. For I determined, I resolved, I made up my mind ahead of time. This is as in no matter what the pressure is to do something else. This is what I'm going to do, no matter no matter what. For I decided, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's a great example of the church, if you will, the apostle, as a foundation point for the church, being on mission. I'm going to stick to the script of the gospel, a la Great Commission, a la Matthew 28, Mark chapter 10, 45, and it's going to be about one thing. It's gospel. It's what I do. It's who I am. And Paul, when you read 1 Corinthians, it's kind of interesting because he starts off in chapter 1 and chapter 2 this way, and he ends in chapter 15, and he says, the gospel is of first importance. And throughout the whole thing, he weaves this theme in addressing all of their problems, Somehow it's related to the gospel as the solution. And what's interesting is one of the issues one of the issues is, in one and two, the Corinthians are wanting some something different. They, they, want, they want to expand their 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 mission. They, they want to add some complexity to it, some some perhaps value to it, so the church uh, is seen as more significant and more value by the watching culture than it is. And Paul, in essence, puts his foot down and says, look at how you were saved. Look at how I did ministry. And you need to make sure that you know that I resolved when I came to Corinth to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Learn from me as you're thinking about your philosophy of ministry. As I like the illustration so much, it's a one-string guitar. And it's gospel, 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 gospel. Paul was educated. Paul was affluent. Paul understood the kingdom of this world. But what is the church here to do? What is the church to be? It is a gospel-proclaiming community, not a politicizing one or any other one. It's that resolve. It's that commitment to stay on mission. What are we here for? What are we here to do? What are we about? We're about that which is of first importance amidst the many other good things that are there that maybe, and we're going to get there, you as an individual need to be involved in. But what is the church here to be? What is the church supposed to do? It is about gospel ministry. It is as clear as can be from my perspective, hopefully speaking with charity. The church's calling is not social. The church's calling is not to redeem culture, which is kind of a buzz phrase. And by the way, that's taken from Protestant liberalism. To redeem culture... The only kind of redemption talked about in the New Testament is the redeeming work of Christ, redeeming sinners. So be careful and know something of the baggage. When we're trying to redeem culture, that's called social gospel. And there's a reason why there's a lot of empty church buildings because they forgot what their mission was and they wanted to become relevant and do more than just preach the gospel. 
when in fact the church does its best work when the church acts like the church. A gospel proclaiming community. Which is good for the world. Which impacts culture. We can make our biggest impact, I would suggest to you, on our culture by being the church, the church that Christ called us to be, which would be to have a resolve and an ironclad, hopefully satin-hearted resolve to proclaiming Christ. We're not called to be a social institution, a political institution. And again, we're not called to do the many valuable things that there are out there to do because there are valuable things, important things. Again, does the church influence culture? It does influence culture. We do want to influence the culture. I do want to influence governmental officials. I want us to do that as the church, but how do we do it? Well, we are a gospel-proclaiming community. And certainly we would pray for them as well, that we would have the freedom to keep being a gospel-proclaiming community. But it is our calling. Now let's move to number four, a fourth strand of biblical rationale for the church not being involved in governmental issues, not being a politicizing entity, but a gospel-proclaiming entity, And that would be, number four, the mission of the individual. The mission of the individual. Now, as an individual, you have dual citizenship if you're a Christian. Okay, you're a citizen of the coming kingdom. Okay? You're a citizen of heaven. And you're also a citizen of whatever entity claims you. Most of you would be American citizens. But if you're a citizen of somewhere else, then you you, you see the point at least. Citizen of heaven, but a citizen of this world. I'm a United States citizen. So I have citizenship here, and I have citizenship in heaven, and so I have dual citizenship. Some of you have triple, perhaps, if there is such a thing. Paul was a Roman citizen, and he was a citizen of heaven. With that, we're going to see that you can see or you can observe that there might be unique responsibilities for being a citizen of heaven and we are part of that heavenly community, so to speak, which would be the church. But we also are citizens of this world and we might have responsibilities, obligations to function as good citizens. Loving our neighbors, not just the brethren. See where this is going? I hope you're kind of seeing it, and I hope, the, I hope the wheels are turning. And I hope it's not just the lights are on, but nobody's home. <laughs> Most of you have to look like the wheels are turning. This is good. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, there we go. There really is heavenly citizenship. That caused Paul to to hold on to things a little bit loosely because he he knew he was a citizen of the kingdom of heaven as a result of what Christ had done for him through the power of the gospel, the work of Christ. And so I belong to another kingdom. 
At the same time, he was a Roman citizen. In fact, in Acts chapter 22, where, where they are going to kill him, in Acts chapter 22, he calls upon his Roman citizenship. He'd not received a just trial under Roman law, and so he calls upon his earthly citizenship, and he calls for a just trial. So he's not one who's afraid to be a two-kingdom theology guy. I know I belong to that kingdom, but I belong to this kingdom too. And there's a place to talk in both senses. He's not abandoning the church's commitment to future or, or heavenly kingdom only, so to speak, ministry. But he does acknowledge that he's a Roman citizen. Acts chapter 22 verse 25 says, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? So he calls upon his earthly citizenship. He has dual status, dual citizenship. And by that, I would want to make the observation and even draw the conclusion that for you and for me, as we have dual citizenship, we have opportunities to impact the world, culture, government. Maybe not just opportunities, sometimes responsibilities. Omaha Bible Church needs to mind its own business. Gospel proclaiming community, one string guitar. And if you're a Christian and part of this local church, then you, then you need to be a part of that. But you also have a citizenship in the temporal, in the here and now, other kingdom. Haven't you been called by Jesus in Matthew 22 to love your neighbor? That sounds like an obligatory responsibility to function, to be even engaged in the world in which you live. As a Christian, but as, as a fellow image bearer, the image of God, and there are other image bearers. And, and if you want to love them, you want to do what's good for them and what's helpful for them. Not just even, I don't think it's just you might want to, I would suggest to you, you might very well have a moral obligation to. And oftentimes this is where churches like Omaha Bible Church would be remiss in their duties to at least teach this. So I'm hopefully never, unless I lose my mind, which could happen tomorrow, but I hope that we would never be a church that is calling for anything other than in the name of this church, in the name uh, of the church, anything other than gospel ministry for salvation and discipleship. That is who we are. That is what we do. But in teaching the whole counsel of God, which we're supposed to do, which, by the way, culminates in the gospel, you're going to learn all kinds of things about what is just and what is right and what is appropriate and what is inappropriate, including the fact that you, as an image bearer of the image of God, are called to love your neighbor, and so you might have responsibilities and love for other people to do certain political things. but not in the name of Omaha Bible Church.
See, what we don't want to do is fall off the, the cliff over here and do social gospel liberalism, which leads to total irrelevance, even though in the short term it seems to be so relevant. And forget the gospel. The gospel gets eclipsed. But on the other side, we don't want to do, um, let's call it fundamentalism, a certain brand of fundamentalism, Protestant fundamentalism, that would be if it's not somehow church ministry, gospel ministry, it's unimportant, invalid, and should never be given the time of day. How can we love our neighbor if we're not standing up for them when we have the opportunity to? I suggest we can't. What I'm presenting to you in theological circles is called two-kingdom theology, if you want a category for it. Do I think it's all figured out? No, because there's more and more controversy and discussions and the books never end. But somehow I've got to see both of these as, as both important and both real. So let's have the church do what the church is supposed to do. And you're a part of the church, so you need to be a part of that. It's a priority. But at the same time, you are still part of this world. You have responsibilities, obligations, opportunities. Not always easy to balance. Not always easy. This raises all kinds of questions for me as to what this looks like. I have a couple of examples. Maybe we'll look at it at the end if there's time. If I only do the here and now in the name of loving my neighbor, then I'm not doing this. But if I only do this, then I'm not doing... And I'm not going to tell you what the split is. I'm going to say pray for wisdom. But I'm going to say if you're, if you're a citizen of this world, oh, and by the way, you are unless your heart just stopped. It's appropriate for you to stop and think, what is my role here? As a human being, what is my role here as a human being who's been called by Jesus? Let's ratchet it up even a little bit more to love my neighbor. It's important to think about. Number five, a fifth strand of biblical rationale for the church not being involved in governmental issues is the distinction between Israel and the church. The distinction between, the, between Israel and the church, and I think we can do this one rather quickly, but it really is important uh, that you think about this one. In Genesis 12, 2, God promises to make a nation. Israel would not only be that nation, but also a religious entity, thereby being a quote-unquote holy nation, Exodus 19.6. Okay, think about that. God's going to raise up a nation. And they're not just going to be a national entity like we might think of in the United States. They're going to be a holy nation. They're, they are a, a church-state entity in our terms. Exodus 19. That's who Israel is. Now, you've got to remember that when you read your Old Testament. And you've got to remember that when you move into the New Testament, the other side of Calvary, the church is not called to be a holy nation. Not in that sense. That kind of language might be used figuratively, but not in a literal sense, as was the case with Israel. You've got to remember that. Remember, we're not a holy nation. The church is not a holy nation. The church is made up of all nations. Right? Matthew 28. 
Ephesians 3, Galatians chapter 3. There's a combination of... So you, at that level, you have to see a distinction. Something's changed between Old Testament world and New Testament world. A lot has not changed, but certainly a lot has changed. But if you don't have that in your mind, you're going to be very confused when you read the Old Testament. You have to remember that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16. Yes. But it's not all equally applicable in the same ways. You, you can't even live in that world. Not with consistency. You can't read the Old Testament and somehow see yourself as nation of Israel and also do New Testament with any kind of consistency. It just can't be done. Because there's no way you're going to do all of those things. I know you're not going to. You can't do all of those things if you are obeying the New Testament. Because Christ fulfills the law. But you've got to read your Old Testament responsibly. Ethically. Because if you don't see a distinction between national Israel and the all nations church, you for sure are not going to see a distinction. You're going to think Omaha Bible Church needs to be politically uber active. Because Israel was called to be that. With a military, right? Doing military things. There's definitely a distinction. We as Americans have a really, really big tendency to blur this line, to unite church and politics. We don't even realize we're doing it. Every time we, without thinking, you could quote this verse thoughtfully, I know, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, but every time we, we wrench 2 Chronicles 7.14 out of its natural Old Testament habitat, it evidences the tendency of confusing Israel and the church, more precisely, confusing Israel and America. You know the verse. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn their, from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You can quote that verse. Secondary application, right? It's okay to do. But please quote it thoughtfully carefully with some integrity because when you read that verse in its context in its Old Testament habitat its natural habitat that's a national Israel kind of verse and you just confused Israel with America and you just went down a road you didn't really want to go down and you cannot maintain that road with any amount of consistency you just can't do it You've got to see a distinction between Israel and the church, not to mention Israel and America. Again, I'm not trying to say you can't see a principle there, but just somehow take a couple steps back and make sure it's a principle. But we're classic as Americans at doing this. Other countries have done it as well. Other countries have done it more purposefully and said we are the new Israel. And it's led to all kinds of problems. We're not so purposeful about it, but it leads to all kinds of problems because before you know it, it's no wonder that we're confused about what the church is supposed to do because when I read the Old Testament, I think that's what the church is supposed to do and it's total confusion. There's a distinction between the church and Israel. It's ironic that many in America who do this 
don't realize that they are looking and sounding and seeming a lot like a purposeful theological camp called theonomy, God-government, or postmillennialism, or Christian Reconstructionism, where you actually are blending the two, and we actually are the holy nation. Most Americans who quote these verses and think in these terms and blur and don't see any distinction would never sign up for postmillennialism. You know they won't because of the great sales of Tim LaHaye books, which teaches the opposite. Just please read your, try to do your best by God's grace to read your Bible with integrity, seeing a distinction. Holy nation, all nations, different agenda. That's why you see all the social, all the, all the political, all the military stuff in the Old Testament because they are a quote-unquote church state, using church loosely. Religious national entity. Number six, and finally, the sixth strand of biblical rationale for the church not being involved in governmental issues would be the compromising nature of politics. The compromising nature of politics. We can do this one simply. The church is called to be the pillar and the support of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15. We promote the truth. We defend the truth. It's not about negotiating anything. It's not about compromise because it's about the truth of the gospel. Promoting, protecting. Politics, by nature, end up being something that's based upon compromise. And you see where when the church even starts acting political, they have to compromise on all kinds of things. And over time, what always happens is they have to compromise on the gospel. It just won't work. Well, maybe a helpful quotation that might uh, bring things to a close, and then just a couple of examples, and then we'll close this out. Daryl Hart, in his book called A Secular Faith, Why Christianity Favors the Separation of Church and State, uh, has a, a helpful statement at the beginning of his book. And maybe what I'll do is I'll, on the church blog, I'll post some resources that might be helpful for more, and then you can give me questions, and we'll do something on church and culture sometime later. But this is not from a, a liberal, or this is from a conservative, orthodox Presbyterian. You don't get any more conservative in your Presbyterianism, Okay? Darrell Hart says this, Christianity is an apolitical faith. Its message and means, though not indifferent to civil society, transcend all political rivalries, whether between Republicans and Democrats, big business and labor unions, the right and the left, or even Fox News and CNN. <clears throat> Can't believe I quoted that in the church. Historically, the Christian religion with the major exception of its American expression, has been concerned not with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but with salvation from sin and death. End of quotation. Complex issue. Let me just give you an example of how this is a complex issue. Maybe two examples. What happens when in America... Or in another country, let's say, 
a religion is making inroads that is a religion of spirituality and government, and the two are together, then what do we do? Islam is a case in point. This is happening in other places in the world. What would we do? We're not called to do anything other than preach Christ. We preach the gospel. That's who we are. But Islam is, they're promoting their spiritual message, but they are inseparable from the culture. That would be a good trial for us as a church. That's what makes these issues complicated. So am I going to get up here on a Sunday morning if things got hot and heated and start giving you political advice on what you must do and how you must vote and how you need to strategize because it's just gotten too bad and now we need to be something in addition to a gospel-proclaiming community and we need to be a politicizing community for the sake of our very livelihood as a church. See, that would be complicated. It's real. I would suggest to you what would be better would be understanding we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom and the church community represents that and our business is gospel proclamation to Jews, Americans, Muslims, Buddhists, everybody. But that I, along the way, hopefully even today may be stirring you up, would encourage you to remember you are a citizen of this country if you are one. And you would want to vote and act as God would lead you to do what's best for other individuals. Love for your neighbor. You might have a moral obligation to be politically active. That's a real life scenario. But don't do it in the name of the church. If you've seen that movie, The Patriot, with Mel Gibson, like the movie or hate the movie, it's interesting where the pastor who is seemingly somewhat spineless, as pastors usually are in movies. All these great role models. But it's interesting and significant when it comes time to go to war, when he takes his clerical garb off, he takes his collar off, no longer representing the church and the gospel, but as a quote-unquote citizen, as a fellow human being for the good of humanity, he takes his gun and he fights. Dual citizenship, just an illustration, but somewhat helpful. Somewhat helpful. A more true-to-date or life example right now would be, is homosexual marriage a good thing? What's our role in that? Week in and week out, we talk about sin. We talk about the gospel. We talk about forgiveness. Whether you're an adulterer, a fornicator, a thief, or a homosexual... 1 Corinthians 6 would talk about they will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're going to keep doing that. Even if, the, even if the government would shut us down, we would have to. But are we going to preach political messages to try to rally the troops to go fight this in the name of biblical morality? I don't think so. But do you as an individual have responsibilities as a citizen to your fellow human beings as to what is good for them out of love for your neighbor and therefore what is good for our culture to act? I know how I would answer that. But not in the name of Omaha Bible Church. 
Recently, a pastor was interviewed about this homosexual marriage issue, and he was a famous conservative pastor in, in New York City, and he kind of fumbled all over about how to answer it because he just didn't know what to do, and he didn't want to sound like a crazy fundamentalist. And uh, someone else took the dialogue and, and rewrote it and said, here's how it should have gone. If the reporter said, what does your church think about the first commandment? Here's a good answer from a two-kingdom perspective. We do not tolerate the worship of Allah in our church, but in a free society, many members of our church would support religious liberty for peoples of all faiths, and as a session, we do not believe that this conflicts with their profession of faith. Next question, reporter, what does your church teach about the second commandment? Well, we forbid images of God, including Jesus, at our church. But many in our congregation are supporters of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which has many depictions of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And again, our session, Presbyterian Church, does not believe it is a sin to go to museums and see such art. Reporter, I'm skipping a little bit. What does your church consider to be the obligations of the Fifth fifth Commandment? We do teach our members to submit to Mayor Bloomberg, even if they prefer Rudy Giuliani's administration. But we are not about to endorse any party or set of candidates for the government of New York City. Reporter, what does your church think about the Sixth Commandment? We teach that murder is a sin and that even hate is a violation of the Sixth Commandment, a spiritual hate crime, if you will. But we are not about to go out to Citibank Stadium and tell the Mets fans to give a brotherly kiss to the Phillies fans who come up to see their team play. Please, get real. What does your church teach about the seventh commandment? We believe that homosexuality is a sin, as is pornography, adultery, and any form of sexual activity outside of marriage. But again, we recognize that the state cannot legislate legislate Christian morality, even if some of our members are very concerned about the public policy implications of our currently licentious society. We try to make sure that our own members are living lives that conform to the teachings of Scripture. How the rest of Americans live their lives is not our church's responsibility, even though we proclaim all of God's word weekly and publicly and call upon all New Yorkers to repent and believe. What is your church's practice on the Eighth Commandment? We believe that stealing is wrong, but we are not not convinced as a session that high tax rates are a form of robbery. How does your church handle the ninth commandment? We do require our members to defend the honor of fellow members and their neighbors, but we also believe that if if we name sins, address all people as sinners, and call them to repentance, we are not dishonoring their good names or reputations. What does your church teach about the tenth commandment? We teach our members and visitors to be content with their station in life and not envy the prosperity of others. This did not lead us to warn our members away from watching the royal wedding kind of interesting dual citizenship means dual responsibilities yes the church is going to influence the other and you have you'll bring what you know and learn from the bible and the whole counsel of god to your earthly citizenship absolutely and that should happen but the church needs to keep its focus on what the church has been called to do gospel-proclaiming community, Paul says, submit to the government. Even if the one leading is as perverse as could possibly be in his sexuality. We're not about that. 
Although we are, because we preach the gospel that leads to transformation. So I hope this at least stirs the pot a little bit in getting us thinking. Think about these things. We're about the gospel. That's what we do. You need to be about the gospel. That needs to be what you do. Pray about these things. Father, thank you for our time together in thinking about complex issues with lots of nuances. And yet at the same time, in, in, in one sense, they're, they're not complex. They're straightforward and they're clear. Uh, but give us wisdom. Uh, help us to think and, and contemplate and ask hard questions and seek uh, the biblical answers to the hard questions with humility, knowing that we're not the only people to have ever thought about this issue knowing that so many books have been written and so many discussions and sermons, but yet we have responsibility right here, right now as Christians and as well as citizens of this country. Help us to be Christianly in our perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.